take a seed, put it in the ground, tender to it, it will grow into what the seed is. If you sell it, you earn. I love that about it. Bring new solutions to empowering women, especially rural women, farmers who have no access to factors of production like land. Women have an incredibly important role for food security and they carry the largest burden within the household for ensuring food security for their children. Women feed Sub-Saharan Africa. 80% of farmers are women and women produce between 60 and 80% of the food crops that the poor depend on. Yet African women receive only 5% of agricultural extension training and less than 10% of rural credit. In a country like Ghana, women work the land and produce 70% of the crops. That's a huge amount. Yet, women only earn about 10% of the income in agriculture. They do two-thirds of the work for a small fraction of the revenue. And it just sounds completely bonkers to me. And, you know, it's the same story all over the world. It's not just in Ghana. It's in, it's in Bolivia, Ethiopia, Uganda. Those are the countries that we're going to be talking about today. In Ethiopia, for example... Women do about 80% of the agricultural work, yet they own only 20% of the land. And you can imagine how big of an inequality that is and how big of a disadvantage that that puts women at. I'm Ryan Clark in Montreal. And I'm Zara Batiste in Toronto. And this is First Comes Food, a podcast by Canadian Feed the Children. And on this podcast, we're going to focus on an issue that's worldwide, increasing the economic power of rural women. Yes. And, you know, I'm actually really happy we're doing this topic today because it is such a big, important topic. You know, we're at Canadian Feed the Children and people think, what does this have to do? Why do we focus on women? What does that have to do with feeding children? And there's some kind of obvious links and not so obvious ones as well partnering with women farmers to grow food and earn money, produce healthy food for their families, grow their own gardens. All of that contributes massively to children's welfare in so many ways. You'd be surprised at how this helps transform food systems for communities as well. That sounds like really important work. Could you give us some examples? We have programs in many different forms in all of the countries that we work in. And as you know, we said previously, each community has a different set of challenges and we kind of approach things in different ways based on what communities want. So it's not a one size fits all solution. But one example I can share is actually, Ryan, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you have any Caribbean background by any chance? It's funny you mentioned that. I actually do. I am Jamaican you background. You do, right? Have you ever heard of the Susu? I have. You have a group of people who come together. They all put money in a shared pot, you could call it that. And then there's a share out that happens once a month. And when it's your turn, you get the money that's been invested. And a very similar approach is taken in Ghana and Ethiopia, Uganda, a lot of the places that we work in, in Africa. It originates from a West African context. And today, people still do susus all around the world, but for Canadian Feed the Children, it kind of takes the form of a village savings and loan association, and it's a little more formalized, and people get registered with the government, and it's 
often people's only form of banking or access to credit, especially for rural women. Is this because access to capital is a barrier for a woman in particular? It's a huge challenge, Ryan. Oh my gosh. So yeah, we assist partners with agricultural and garden training, branching out into agribusiness and more. Women's empowerment is a really big focus for us. I can imagine the challenges become more difficult with climate change in rural Africa. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is something that's been said by the community members all over, like in Africa as well, in Canada and Bolivia. In Africa in particular, it's among the most vulnerable places on earth to climate change, to the negative effects of climate change. So over 95% of agriculture in Africa is actually rain-fed. So if you have a situation where you can no longer predict the rains, it becomes much more difficult to grow food. And then in addition, the landscape becomes more prone to drought and has fewer agricultural support services It's very difficult for farmers to adapt. So a lot of our programming focuses on that adaptation to climate change because the real solution would be to reduce our carbon emissions. But in the meantime, people need immediate support. So we do a lot of climate adaptation. That's a real focus for the farmers that we work with. So I'm a super curious person. So I want us to hear firsthand how exactly this is working. And to do that, I've contacted Grace Bimnian Krusa, a project manager at CFTC in Ghana, West Africa. She is helping coordinate agriculture programs in Ghana. Hi, Grace. Hi, Ran. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. So describe in your own words, what is the biggest barrier to women's empowerment in Ghana? One of the biggest, in fact, the, the biggest barrier to women's empowerment is their access to and control of productive resources. Resources like land, access to capital or finances, and then information that they need to be able to be effective in their productive activities. And this is influenced by the traditional structure and the practices of our setting in Ghana, and somehow the high literacy rate among women and the fact that they are not participating or representing in decision-making makes their situation worsen. So the, the access to productive resources is a key barrier to women empowerment in Ghana. And how much food production are women farmers responsible for? In Ghana nationally, about 41.2% of women are in the agric sector. And they're able to produce close to 70% of the food stock in the country. And how do you bring more land ownership for women in Ghana? We can deal with the barriers that limit women's access to land. And from our previous work in other communities, doing gender trainings, having dialogue with community authority, and engaging with district assemblies so that we can all look at the structural barriers of women and look at what the state provides to protect women. If you look at the customer rights or law of the country, it makes provision for a spouse, whether a man or a woman, to inherit 50% of the estate. But all of these are just on paper. The implementation of it is very low and Sometimes, in more cases, in the rural areas, people are not even aware of it. So um, through the SHINE projects, 
that we are starting and in our previous project, we attempt to create more awareness of these um, opportunities, dialogue with community members to change behavior and practices so that women can have access to productive resources, especially land and then um, credit. Credit in a sense that in Ghana, if you want to access credit facility, you need a collateral or security, something that is tangible enough for the credit institution to rely on in case you are not able to pay back. And here is the case women do not own access. So they are limited in accessing credit facilities to do productive activities. So we are going to use basically training on gender to emphasize the benefit of women participation in productive activities, how it will benefit the household, how it will benefit the family, the community, and then the country at large. If people appreciate all this, they are willing to do that. And in programs, we had opportunity to engage traditional authority through this means, and they were able to release a good size of land for women to do beekeeping. And the district assembly is supporting the women to register this land so that for a very long time, they assess and control this land for the activity. So I apply all of these experiences in the SHINE project that we are just uh, beginning to implement. The SHINE project, as you may be aware, is looking at sustainable development, human rights, and then inclusion, then gender equality. And, and the project in Ghana, we are looking at implementing it in 16 communities in the Upper East region because they are the pro-poor region in the, in the country. And the project seeks to contribute to sustainable development through women economic empowerment so that uh, opportunities are created and environment is friendly for women to do their economic activities. There were also trainings to build skills and capacity to cope with climate, especially in agri-activities. So there were trainings and demonstrations on climate-smart agri-practices, and we also had support from Department of Food and Agri in the country, provided support for farmers to demonstrate and replicate these practices on their field. So you mentioned that the program currently targets 70% of people in the community, of women in the community. Is there any way you're trying to expand that reach? Definitely. You know, the, the target is not just in vacuum. It is based on the, the interventions or the activities that are going to be implemented. When you look at all the work that's been done so far, which is just incredible, by the way, what do you think is your biggest accomplishment? For the climate projects, uh, at the end of the day, I can confidently say that we have built resiliencies of farmers, especially women, because access to weather information, they have the skills and the knowledge to adapt to coping actions. And in fact, on the field, you will see that a good number of them are really practicing these climate coping actions. And through that, some of them were able to increase their crop yields. I remember one lady saying that last two years, she got only three bags. But in 2021, after harvest, she got about 5.5 bags. That was a good improvement. And she just one of those farmers were able to increase their yield. In addition to that, in the Northern Ghana, we have only one rainy season. 
and so you can only do your farming in a single season farming but through the projects the opportunity for irrigation system should be to be established and we had for the first time people in about five communities doing vegetable uh, production they earned good income from it and they had vegetables to eat these uh, systems are still existing even though the project is ended we still have these systems in the communities and they are continuously going to use it. So I think that I am confident that we have been able to increase resiliencies of our farmers to the risk of climate change. How can us Canadians help? Yes, you know, someone will say that knowledge is not in one person's head. And so for us in Ghana, we are always willing to hear experiences from our colleagues in Canada, especially in our head office, CFTC. They also work with farmer groups if there are good experiences to share, we are open to learn. And the critical of it is about funding. We will appreciate if Canadians can support us raise funding, especially for the SHINE projects. The intervention of the project is so focused. It has high potential to impact in our society, especially for the women. And for me, we would have wished to have this project implemented for um, five years instead of two years. So if we have funding to extend these projects and even beyond the existing communities, that will really help us. Well, that's amazing, Grace. Thank you so much for talking and explaining a lot about this program. I've learned so much. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity also. I appreciate your time and, and thanks to your team as well. So I just want to point out that Ghana is just one place where we are working with women and working towards women's empowerment and inclusion in agriculture. It's a real focus, as I've said, in Ethiopia and Bolivia as well. And even here in Canada, I don't know if you remember in the first podcast on food forests, that was being run by two Indigenous women. So it's really a priority for our organization. It really is. And honestly, for more on that, we're going to head to Ottawa to speak with Susan Watkins. Susan spearheads partnerships that support women's economic empowerment through agribusiness. Hey, Susan, thanks for joining us. Hi there. I want to hear in your words, why is it important to focus on women's livelihood to help feed the children? I think it's because we've learned that handouts don't really work. They're temporary fixes, sometimes they're necessary, but really, if you don't work on livelihoods and helping people to earn their own incomes, mm. it's just not sustainable. And why we focus on women, well, it's a fact. Women have been studied, their use of funds compared to men, they tend to use their money for the household, to care for their children, the elderly, to make sure that priority things like food and education are, are served first before anything else. So that's a little bit why the focus. That makes a lot of sense. What are some of the biggest challenges that rural women in African countries face? There's so many of them, but I would have to say that I guess poverty in general, they have what we call a hand to mouth or a subsistence level life. Their labor is so much in demand, whether it's spending hours walking to go and get water or find firewood or mm. do domestic chores or care for the family or do their farming work. 
they just have so little time and so many calls on their labor. And they really do lack control over any of the income from their labor. So mm. no matter what they're doing, they rarely have a say in, in where the money is going. How does climate change affect women's opportunities? Oh, there's so many different effects that uh, the change in climate has and all sort of revolving around natural resources and, and agriculture. I think uh, the first one that jumps to mind, of course, is distance to have to walk to get water. Mm. You know, one of climate change's biggest things is it, there's less rain and more erratic rain. So they have to walk some, some of them, it's four or five hours to, to go and get water and come back and could be even longer. So that just eats away at their day. So their other work is compressed into shorter hours and the quality of that water, again, goes down as it's concentrated and it's more used by livestock and more concentrated groups of people. There's less ground cover, less trees. So again, walking further to find firewood and most mm -hmm. people are still using firewood for cooking. So that's a big thing. More dust storms, again, the water quality, things like that. And women are the primary caregivers. So as these things deteriorate in quality, the women are taking the brunt of that. With all these challenges, how does your partnership help them overcome these issues? Food security is our entry point. And we know that about 90% of the people in Africa basically derive their income from some kind of agricultural activity. So we're looking at the broadest group of people in rural areas. There's not too many other opportunities. So that's why we tend to look at farming, but we do try and support things beyond production. We try and increase production. We try and increase the quality of the produce, but we also look at value addition. So are they processing what food they're, they're growing or animals they're raising? Are they processing? Are they adding value in different ways? Um, what are the value chains or the other businesses connected with the farming? Here's a Really big question for you. What are you most proud of in this area in terms of entrepreneurship and these projects? I'm most proud that Canadian Feed the Children has really got hold of some good models, some good ways of working that really have shown benefits. One is uh, the village saving and loan associations where farmers, vulnerable groups get together. They save money a little bit every week. And then when they have this money, they can borrow from each other and they hold each other accountable. It's a fairly simple system, locally managed, but it is like rocket science <laughs> in some ways that women have access to microcredit. And it's micro. It can be something very small, like they just need $20 to buy raw vegetables to then cook and serve in their little mini restaurant. They're really simple things, but that was kind of revolutionary. Our way of building community-led programming is also fairly revolutionary. We're using the Reflex system. Again, we didn't create it, but we're using it where every week they get together and they discuss some problem and they discuss what answers or what solutions they can come with. What are their resources? What can they bring to the table? What help do they need? And they create community plans that we can then support. So again, we are not 
identifying the problem, bringing the solution and dumping it. We are responding to a situation where they are looking at their lives and how to make them better. We can support them through bringing ideas that they may not have heard of, innovations. We can bring that and add that to the discussion, but we are not leading the discussion. So often what we're finding that I'm very proud of is that the communities that have gotten used to this way of working they, they come with plans that don't even include us. They come with plans to do something together and use their own resources to achieve what goal they're after. And I think to me that that is success. You know, we're out of the picture. I think maybe another thing that I'm really proud of is the local market model that we have been working with for a long time. We do not get too much involved with monocropping or single crop like rice or maize or, or soybeans or something that is generated for export. It's a model where you often have a lead farmer and then the other farmers do contract work. They receive seeds, they grow, and they sell back to the contract farmer or the lead farmer. And we've moved away from that. We really look at what business can we generate that serves the local market mm. or really at most the regional kind of market around the area. And I think that that is much more healthy. We've seen through COVID, our work survived because it wasn't blocked by cross-border issues or anything like that. People ate, they sold their goods in their local market and things kept going. The economies didn't collapse because the work we're doing is strengthening those local economies. So I think that that's important. And then lastly is this business incubation model, which is not like the first world incubation models where they're based in universities or the private sector and only the best and the brightest sell their idea and get support. Hmm. It's not like that. We can have a group of women coming forward and saying, oh, I want to open a tea room with my friends and I need these things and we help them to look at, okay, there's 10 other tea rooms here. What can you do different or better or, you know, change it up, you know, that this business model lends itself to, I think, to Africa more because mm -hmm. then you don't have to have everybody with a lot of formal education. You can have mixed groups, you know, it's something that women and youth can get involved in. You don't have to have big capital behind you and those kind of resources that women and youth usually don't have. So I think that this model that we're working on with the big safety net, I think is the way forward. And so I'm really proud that we've seen the light and we're moving ahead with something that's much more useful. I love that. There's so many positive things to take away from that. And along with that, do you feel like the situation is getting better for rural women I think the situation for rural women is getting better, but in a lot of ways, it's still very fragile. Mm. We just look at COVID and how food insecurity has risen up against. It's crazy. I just wanted to ask, what do you think success looks like for you? I think it's having a more enabling environment around women. That's sort of a NGO jargonese. What does that mean? <laughs> I think it, it, it really means that women have support and they have access to opportunities that will lead them to a better life. Well, Susan, there's a lot I learned from our conversation today. 
Thank you so much for chatting with me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I love what Susan said right at the end there. Women need support and access to opportunity to lead a better life. She summed it up so wonderfully. Yeah, and it's just such an engaging interview. And she said it right off the top. Handouts don't work because they just don't. It's straightforward. It's simple. They're just a temporary fix. And we need to work on women's livelihood and earning their own income where they can use that money for food, education, and the household. Absolutely. And, you know, I know um, there was a study done I'm not sure by who. I think it was um, IFAD. And they said that women invest 90% of their income into the household compared to 10% for men. So when you empower women, you're empowering families and children and you're giving them the best opportunity for a healthy life and to fulfill their potential. And you're also strengthening the community economy as well. It is. And another thing I wanted to touch on with that is the fact that just the kids growing up in the household, like how does it feel to watch their mother working every single day? And it's just something that needs to change in order to make changes in the future. Yeah, part of my role is interviewing and gathering stories from community mm-hmm. members. And a lot of the children, they just say how proud they are of their moms and their husbands also say how proud they are of their wives. And it just, it it changes attitudes, it improves family life, and it just makes everything better for everyone. It's such an important thing, honestly. Yeah. And that's another First Comes Food podcast. And before we go, I just want to mention that the SHINE program that we talked about earlier, it wouldn't have happened without support from Global Affairs Canada, the Slate Family Foundation, AFDB, and all our partners. Thank you so much um, for supporting these programs. And also thank you to all the donors and supporters, no matter how much or how little you give, it all makes a difference. Thank you, Grace, Susan, for all that insight. And... Thank you for listening. Until next time. For more on how you can support Canadian Feed the Children, go to our website at canadianfeedthechildren.ca. That's canadianfeedthechildren.ca. There's all kinds of information on all of the work that we do in Canada and abroad.